Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only enact, uh, act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically popular. Now, you may have noticed that housing costs keep going up, but there is also a cross-ideological group of people trying to ensure that people can build more and keep costs down. Uh, M. Nolan Gray is a researcher and advocate for more permissive housing development and is the research director for California YIMBY, and that's Yes in My Backyard. And he's been part of a coalition that led to changes in Montana and, and California. Nolan, welcome. James, such, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell me about your quest for more permissive, or sorry, less restrictive zoning. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, so until recently, housing affordability, housing affordability was really a coastal problem. It was a California problem. It was a Northeast problem. But what happened over the course of the pandemic was the California-style housing crisis went national. Uh, and you had uh, essentially extreme uh, run-up in rents and home prices and rock-bottom vacancy rates uh, all across the country. So you had a lot of uh, legislators in places where they hadn't historically given much thought to uh, housing affordability, asking, you know, what can we do? And as I argue, and I think many Yimbies would argue, uh, part of the reason we have this shortage is that we have many local regulations on the books that either make it outright illegal to build uh, housing uh, or force the housing that is built to be even more expensive than it might otherwise have been, uh, or uh, uh, force housing that we do theoretically allow to go through this long, difficult, cumbersome permitting process. And so, uh, you know, when we're looking at addressing the housing crisis, um, of course, it's going to take a lot of fixes, but removing these regulatory barriers to new housing production uh, is probably the lowest hanging fruit. Well, tell me about the regulatory burdens on um, on housing. I mean, there is zoning, but there's also safety codes. There's uh, the permitting process. There's a lot of stuff. Uh, housing is a very regulated field. So can you at least walk me through um, what uh, what regulations they're subject to? Absolutely. Yeah. So just focusing really on zoning here. Uh, zoning is doing two things. Zoning is saying for every single parcel uh, in the city, we're going to tell you the allowed use and the allowed density. So uh, most people have played SimCity. They know the use piece, right? Residential, commercial, industrial. Uh, but it goes much more detailed than that. So you'll, they'll have dozens of different commercial districts, each with their own list of enumerated businesses that are allowed. You'll have residential districts where different types of housing are allowed. Um, in your typical U.S. city, uh, 75 to 90% of residential areas are reserved exclusively for detached single-family homes. So that means that you legally cannot build a townhouse, you legally cannot build a small apartment building, you legally cannot build a duplex, etc. Um, the other thing that zoning is regulating is the density or the form of new development. So most people know, right, like height limits, right? We have height limits, but it gets so much more complex than that. You have rules specifying how close can the building sit to the property line. We call those setbacks. You have rules restricting how much floor area you can actually build or floor area ratios. You have rules saying, well, if you want to have a home in a certain area, you have to have a lot size of at least X amount, right? So we might say, if you want to live in this neighborhood, you need to be able to afford a 10,000 square foot lot, even if the market really could sustain a 5,000 square foot lot or a 2,500 square foot lot. Um, likewise with parking, you'll have zoning rules that say, if you want to build 
a, a, a storefront or if you want to build an apartment building, you have to have so much parking, either a giant parking lot or a giant parking garage, regardless of what the people who might actually live in that building might want. And so those rules increase housing costs potentially. Um, and then because these rules have become so restrictive, so often projects need what's called discretionary relief or they need to get some exemption from the zoning. And then what that entails is you might have to have multiple public hearings. Your application might have to go to city council where it becomes politicized. In some states, you might have to undertake an environmental review, which can result in litigation. And so these rules collectively have made it, if not illegal, very difficult to build uh, housing in many U.S. communities. So um, I guess how did the default then become single detached homes on big lots you know, and mandatory big sizes? It seems like someone could have said, you know, we don't need to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a the result of a 100-year grand experiment that began in the 19-teens and 20s. So in the 19-teens uh, and 1916, New York City and Berkeley and four other cities are the first cities to adopt zoning codes um, at the federal government. So uh, it's not the, even that old, at least as policies. 100 years is pretty short. I mean, it's roughly as old as the income tax. Right. And that's I, I always stress that because I think people think, oh, well, come on, like zoning is, we've always been doing zoning. Zoning is basic common sense. Mm -hmm. and, and city planning is common sense, right? Humans have always been planning out streets, planning out water, planning out infrastructure, making sure we're reserving spaces for parks or public Although, public Although, let me push back on that a little bit. I'm pretty sure a lot of old European cities, uh, their streets were designed by livestock. Uh, it depends. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so... Uh, sure, in many contexts, the streets haven't been planned, or they've been planned by uh, footpaths, uh, yeah. right? Um, but there's also this tradition going back to the ancient Greeks and the Western tradition of sitting down and planning out street grids, which has defined the form of certainly many Midwestern cities, <laughs> but 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 cities all across the U.S. You know, much more of an a post enlightenment approach to city planning of okay, let's sit down and come up with a rational uh, street grid network. But to your point, yeah, you will still find communities like that certainly on the East Coast. Uh, in the Northeast, uh, uh, where there wasn't even planning for, for the street network. But in any case, those city planning traditions go back a long time because they're actually rooted, I think, in real quality of life considerations. But the zoning piece of, well, we're going to let planners sit down and define the permitted use and density for every single parcel in the city, that's a very new project. And as I argue in my book, I think it's a project that's pretty unambiguously failed on its own terms. Um, you've talked about, I've seen you write about the uh, benefits that planners can offer their communities. What are they? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, my book and, and I think my perspective on this is it's not an argument against prudent land use regulations, right? You need rules for making sure that neighbors aren't engaging in behaviors that have uh, negative externalities or that impose harms on their neighbors, right? You need rules for things like noise. Uh, uh, smoke and smog, probably for traffic generation, right? You know, I think that a lot of nimbyism is actually motivated by, motivated by uh, traffic and parking, right? And so, like, you probably do need rules to say, okay, if you're going to engage in some form of new development, we want to be thoughtful about that and, and, and have an understanding of that. That's one piece of it that I think is important. The other piece of it is just sitting down and having a long-term plan for uh, the, to scale up infrastructure and to scale up public services commensurate to growth. We take this attitude in the U.S. of many U.S. cities take this attitude of, well, we don't have the we don't have the, the road capacity to uh, build any more housing or we don't have the sewer capacity to build any more housing. So rather than scale up that capacity, we're just going to say no new housing. 
Uh, and I would say that that's the complete opposite of what we should be doing. Planners should be saying, okay, look, what, what are the demographic and market and cultural trends? What, what, what kind of development do we expect to be built uh, in the coming years? And then what infrastructure plan or public service plan do we need to have to accommodate that? Not the other way around, forcing cities to accommodate a plan. The plan should accommodate the natural growth of cities. And I think a lot of planners have that perspective. So what have you done to help uh, uh, lower housing costs? <laughs> well, uh, my full-time job is research director at California EMB, where we work hard to pass laws to make it easier to build housing uh, here in California. And like I said at the top of the talk, now that this issue has gone national, we spend a lot of time working with our colleagues in other states, younger groups, newer groups that are trying to tackle this issue, uh, including folks in, in, in Michigan uh, came out and did book talks and uh, uh, Hillsdale College and and uh, and Flint, Michigan, and in uh, Grand Rapids. Uh, so uh, we 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 work here in California, uh, kind of at the frontier of this issue, for better or worse. Uh, we're helping our colleagues in other states, just sort of supporting the growth of this national YIMBY movement. That if it's not already arrived in your city or state, it will be arriving soon. I think what's happening right now is there's a new generation of people who the the, the culture has flipped. Right? I think we lived in a very NIMBY culture for a long time. Where and that's it was just, snow in my backyard, the right, opposite of right. yes in my backyard. Right, where the, the, the consensus was no, just no to everything. And the person who would show up at the public hearing, uh, who generally would not be representative of the broader community, would always say no. And now we've kind of flipped that script. And we have people going to these meetings and saying, yeah, actually, I wouldn't mind some additional housing. I wouldn't mind new stores uh, or services opening up in my community. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a policy shift, but it's also a cultural shift. Okay. Uh, what are you asking uh, your these local communities to do? Well, you know, uh, it depends on the context, but broadly speaking, look at these zoning rules and identify where they might be preventing the types of development that would actually enrich your community. Um, so, in for example, in many urban contexts, we have a lot of conversations about uh, lowering these minimum parking mandates that require developers to build huge amounts of off-street parking. You know, every parking space, parking, there's no such thing as free parking, as uh, <laughs> as, as Donald Shoup likes to say, great urban economist. Um, the cost of all that new parking is hidden into the price of the home or the price of rents or the price of the goods and services you consume. Uh, you know, if it's structured parking, that can increase the cost of new housing by fifty to $70,000 uh, per stall. So it's a pretty serious cost. Uh, so working with uh, 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 local officials and cities especially to say, hey, do you need to be mandating this very, very expensive amenity that the market actually can probably do a better job of providing? Um, in cities, we work a lot with folks to try to lower minimum lot sizes. So allow for developers, if, if people want to buy them, to subdivide homes potentially on smaller lots um, that we currently don't give them that option. Uh, land generally accounts for about a third of the price of new housing. And so if, if you can allow uh, homeowners who would like to make that trade-off to consume less land, they can have a more affordable home that we currently make illegal. I'd say beyond the substantive changes too, we also just got to work on our processing and permitting uh, 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 reforms, right? So it, it, if you theoretically allow something, but it takes six months or it takes two years to get a permit, or or you allow something, but it requires the person to have to undergo multiple public hearings and have their neighbors all yell at them, and they have to complete this giant environmental report, and they have to get sued seven, seven different times, then it's not really allowed, right? And so speeding up these processes and, 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 and doing this basic government function of permitting uh, more efficient, I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. 
Now, I've heard you mention this a couple of times that uh, public hearings tend to be geared towards people who are angry about um, uh, about more permissive development. Um, this process seems like if you were trying to get people's honest opinions or your neighbor's honest opinions of whether uh, a new development is acceptable or whether a variance to, to a rule is, is acceptable, it seems like that's the worst way to ask for it because it gives voice to the, lo to the loudest and, and uh, the loudest people who are going to be most upset by something. I can, is, is there a better way of doing that? That's such a perfect point. I mean, yeah, people have this idea that like who shows up at a public hearing is randomly selected. And it's like, no, the person who shows up at the public hearing is unusually motivated, uh, yeah. right? They might have unusually strong preferences about not wanting to see new development in their community. And we know this from, from survey data. There's an amazing book, uh, Neighborhood Defenders, where they basically are like, who shows up at public hearings? And they know that it's generally people who are a little bit better off, who already own their own home, uh, uh, generally retirees who might have a little bit more free time, right? It's not the type of person who can show up at a Tuesday, 10 a.m. public hearing is not randomly selected. It's not the single mom who might be struggling to make rent. It might not be the, the working parents who are caring for two or three kids. It might not be the, the retiree on a fixed income who's just barely getting by. The, the people who are most acutely affected by the housing crisis, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, we've taken this whole perspective of, well, we just need to have all these public hearings and that's how we're going to get people's perspective. I think there's better ways to do this. I think you can do this rather than on a project by project basis, you do it at the general plan or the comprehensive plan stage. And you actually say, let's, let's have scientific surveys, let's have focus groups, where we mm -hmm. maybe provide childcare or, you know, free food or drinks to people to actually incentivize normal people to come out to these hearings, because you do have to do some of that broad big picture planning. But then once you have that plan in place, you can say, okay, look, we have a community consensus on this plan, we're not going to do every single project as a giant uh, uh, public process. And I, I think communities that have taken that approach have been much more more uh, effective. All right, so um, you're you're going into play uh, going into places where you've got local partners. You've got some ideas for what they need to change. That's not just let's keep going through the same process over and over again. What are those fights like? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and I would say too, in terms of like what you're asking for, a lot of times. Talk to your local builders who are trying to build mm. the types of housing that you know your community needs, right? So they're the ones who will tell you, here's where the constraint is. Um, now, what are these fights like? Um, I, I find that th this is the number one issue now increasingly in many communities, uh, housing affordability. So you actually usually, in the past, it was like you had to kind of shake people and be like, please, this is, the, this is a problem. If not now, it will be a problem in the next few mm. years, right? Like, just look at the path that California has followed. Um, but nowadays, it's like, actually, there's typically a local or a state elected official who says, every time I go back to my district, I hear about housing constantly. I don't know, what can we do? We don't have the money to, we don't have a ton of money to spend on subsidies, but but I'm still hearing that we need to act on this. And then you can be there with a solution. Hey, it costs nothing to remove bad rules. It, it costs almost nothing to speed up your permitting process and, and streamline uh, getting projects through. Uh, it costs nothing to uh, uh, just go back and remove a whole bunch of these accumulated regulations that have collectively made it impossible to build housing. Now, it, it does take work. It takes political entrepreneurs to go out and build the coalitions and talk to groups that regularly partner with YIMBYs on these issues. Groups like AARP, who's concerned about making it affordable to age in place, so they love things like accessory dwelling units. Uh, talking to groups like 
uh, NAACP who might be concerned about the segregationist intentions of many of these rules, which we haven't even gotten into, or industry groups, builders, right? Uh, builders, yeah. realtors, uh, local people who actually build and sell housing. In many cases, they understand these issues very acutely. And so building those coalitions and talking to people and talking to a diverse range of people, one of the beautiful things about this issue is it's not partisan or ideological, uh, right? You know, there's that classic quote, there's no Republican or Democratic way to, to pick up trash. Um, most of these issues are not especially ideologically motivated. And you might say, hey, we need to get rid of minimum uh, uh, lot size, or we should allow uh, 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 low-rise multifamily in all residential districts. You might say to a Republican, hey, this is a property rights issue. This is an issue of deregulation or regulation run amok. Uh, to a progressive, you might say, hey, these rules are rooted in attempts to segregate our cities. These rules force our cities to sprawl out uh, and gobble up natural lands. Uh, you speak in terms of people's values, uh, but you're advocating for broadly the same policy, not disingenuously, I think. And people start to get it. They're like, oh, okay, actually, we can work together. We can work across the aisle. This makes sense. Yeah. All right. Uh, so you've got a diverse coalition of groups of, of people who might be interested in in, uh, in this. What do you personally bring to the coalition? Uh, well, so I, I've been very fortunate to be able to speak in a lot of different places and work in a lot of different places uh, so I, I like to think I bring a little bit of a national perspective. I talk to a lot of groups where they, you talk to them about this and maybe some, a couple of Yumbies are meeting and over, over drinks or coffee once, once a month and, and they're talking about how bad things are. And uh, you say, well, hey, like, you know, get organized. And they say, well, oh no, we, we can never do that here in our little community. We can never do that in our state. There's the politics on the line. And I would just say, you have no idea how quickly this thing moves if you get organized and if you are thoughtful about the arguments you make and you start collecting data and you start telling that story, um, things change incredibly rapidly. Um, so that's, I, I would say a national perspective is key. I also think that one of our strengths at California Yimby and a lot of Yimby groups as well is uh, we have a lot of research capacity. So, you know, there's just not a lot of research and policy development attention going to this area, right? You know, so much policymaking is focused on on international or federal policy. People spend all day thinking about like, what should we do in Ukraine? Or, you know, mm -hmm. how do we tackle interest rates or, or inflation? Uh, and it's like, the average person has like negative impact on what happens in those policy areas. It doesn't matter. You can spend all day thinking of it and then you can come up with a perfect solution and you're not gonna affect the policy outcome. Uh, zoning uh, and local housing policy if you care even a little bit, you can almost certainly shift the policy in your state, in your city, if not your entire state, right? This is an area where it's like this is a local fight. And if you do go out and put the work in, you can really, really shift policy for the better. And so that's I encourage people, you know, this isn't like this isn't like those other policy areas where you just have to like doom scroll and despair. You can learn about this issue and then go to a public hearing, call your city council member, call your state legislator uh, and and things will immediately start moving. And it's an issue, I can't stress this enough, where normal people's voices matter a lot more. Because if you're one of the people who are affected by these changes, if you're one of those people who's outraged and have been and, and you know is in the neighborhood and, uh, and have been showing up to meetings, your opinion often gets discounted. But if you're a normal person expressing an interest in, in these issues, your voice is, is a lot stronger than it would be if you're just an interested party. So I do think like that's an important thing. But you notice, I, I, I want to go back to a thing that, that you noted, which is 
people are interested in this issue now in ways that ha they haven't been in the past. It suggests the popularity of this issue has changed a lot in the most recent past. I think part of that is, again, growing housing costs and the concern, concern over it. Uh, but what do you think is the Overton window like on this issue right now? Where is the lines of what is feasible and what is not feasible? Well, I, I love that this is the framing for your podcast because this is absolutely an area where the Overton window is shifting. When I wrote this book, I maybe had, I maybe had like a half dozen really compelling examples of reforms. You know, we we were tinkering. We were saying, okay, let's just let's just um, maybe we just allow accessory dwelling units, right? Like that would be nice progress. Yeah. Um, and now and the discourse you did, is. By the way, we, we, like we did, and it was spectacularly successful. Yeah. yeah, and so in 2017, California legalizes ADUs statewide. And for those who don't know, those are small additional apartments that share a lot with a single-family home. They might be in an unused attic or a garage or a basement. You carve it off. You have a separate unit. Many people rent them out to family and friends. Um, we did that, and not only did the sky not fall, but it was enormously popular. And then, uh, you know, later on. Uh, Minneapolis says, well, actually, we think that we should allow low-rise multifamily citywide in all of our residential districts. There's no health or safety reason to not do that. Um, and so, you know, escalating. I mean, parking reform has just radically scaled up. We have these state bills in places like Texas where even two years ago there was no discourse whatsoever on on zoning reform. In Montana, in recent years, again, no discourse on zoning reform in Montana five years ago. And now they're saying, well, we're going to set statewide standards to allow uh, uh, mixed-use development in all of our commercial areas. So if somebody wants to take a strip mall or a half-empty office space that's never going to be fully leased out in a post-remote work world, we will allow you to do apartments over shops like we like we did before zoning. So the Overton window here is shifting rapidly. You know, my book was partly an Overton window expanding exercise, right? Because I'm actually suggesting, I think sort of the zoning system that we have on the books, this idea that we can, that technocratic planners and, and politicians are going to be able to assign the permitted use and density on every single lot. I think that project has just basically failed. And I actually, my goal is to invite advocates and policymakers and uh, practitioners to start thinking like, what would a land use planning system that, that gets the goods look like? Uh, we know that the current system has failed. And 100 years ago, it was, it was established by reformers who uh, we're, we're incredibly bold in their thinking. Um, I think we should be equally as bold. I think we should say, look, what would it actually look like to have a system of land use planning that can deal with negative externalities, uh, that can deal with quality of life issues, that can coordinate growth with infrastructure, but without uh, locking our cities into a straitjacket? How optimistic are you that you're going to be able to accomplish that? Right now, I've seen no evidence that the... Uh, that the uh, uh, the movement's slowing down. I was just at Yimby Town, which is our sort of national conference, and it was twice the size of what it was two years ago. Um, and it seems to be doubling in size every <laughs> couple of years. We had a little bit of disruption with the pandemic, but it's just growing rapidly. I mean, the, the, you know, the silver lining of the housing crisis spreading is that more and more people are thinking about it. And it's not just about housing. It's also about just uh, about housing affordability. It's also about choice. People just want choice in the types of communities or neighborhoods they can live in, and we currently don't give that to them. So I think as more people get turned on to this issue, uh, it's just going to continue to spread. Uh, and I'm incredibly excited about almost week to week, I hear of some new city or some new state that's exploring this issue and uh, adopting liberalizing reform. Nolan, good luck in your attempts to shift the Overton window. Thank you, James. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center.
please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinaw with a C, like the island.